Well, last year at Christmas, I decided I'd have a change from the traditional turkey. My kids have left home and they were coming around in the evening and I knew they'd already be stuffed full of food, so I just thought, I'll, I'll bake a ham and we'll have some nice salads. Well, that was a big mistake. Both kids took me on one side and they said, Mum, what on earth have you done? My daughter said she'd hardly eaten anything at lunchtime to leave room for the roast potatoes. And my son said he'd been telling his partner for months about our traditional turkey dinner. So I'm back with the turkey again this year. But it can be tricky, can't it, with such a big bird, making sure that it's succulent and moist and not dry and overcooked. But I have a trick up my sleeve. Delia. You may not have heard of Delia, but let me tell you, she is great. So in Delia Smith's Christmas, Delia gives you an hour-by-hour set of instructions for how to get the perfect traditional Christmas dinner on the table at one o'clock. So my Christmas runs entirely on what Delia says. Delia says, put the turkey in the oven at 7.30 in the morning. So that's what I do. Delia says, peel the potatoes at quarter past eight. Well, that's what I do. Delia says you're allowed to have a coffee and tidy up a little bit at nine o'clock. So you kind of get the picture. And Delia acknowledges that housing your very large turkey in the fridge at this time of year can be difficult because the fridge is needed for so many other things. So she has a couple of helpful suggestions. Page 189. And I quote, she says, you can use a bedroom, the garage, or even the boot of the car to store your turkey in. Well, it's a good job I know that Delia is English and that she's writing for an audience where the car boot is as cold as the fridge at Christmas time. In fact, when I was a student in England, I, I lived in a flat that was tiny, had a tiny kitchen. So when I had guests over, I used to keep dessert on the back seat of the car. So I know that Delia's suggestion would work well. But here in Australia... Well, when it comes to reading the Bible, it's important that we know the cultural background to what's going on so that we fully understand the message in it. If we don't do this, we run the risk of reading things into the text that were never intended, like Delia's guarantee of salmonella for an Australian Christmas dinner, or we risk missing things that would help us understand the text more accurately. So today, we're going to put an apron on, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to get into this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. From verses 13 and 14, it appears that the Thessalonians were particularly distressed over what would happen to Christians who've already died when Jesus comes again. And this was a real concern to the Thessalonian Christians, because it seems that they knew a little bit, but they didn't have the full picture. They knew about the promises we have of eternal life. They knew that Jesus will come again. And they knew that when Jesus does come again, we'll all receive eternal resurrection bodies. The thing is, they thought Jesus was probably going to come again during their own lifetime. And they didn't know how these promises of eternal life would apply to their fellow Christians who'd already died. So their grief was compounded. It, it was the double whammy. They were grieving the loss of loved ones, but they were worried that their loved ones might miss out on eternal life because they died too soon. 
before Jesus' second coming. And nothing prepares you for the death of a loved one, does it? There's a finality to it that we struggle to comprehend. I remember when my mum died, she'd been terminally ill and she was in palliative care for the last week of her life. So we knew she was dying. The whole family actually lived at the hospice uh, for that last week of her life. And we got to say goodbye and we watched her take her final breath. But later that night, after we'd gone home, I remember looking at the empty armchair in the lounge room when the phone rang. And the first thought that ran through my mind was, oh, that'll be mum, saying that the doctor's made a mistake and that we can go and pick her up from the hospice. I couldn't actually apply what I knew intellectually about death to the events of the day. Death just, it's too profound. It's, it's too complex to take it all in at once when it hits close to home. But then, of course, over the ensuing days, grief and the pain sets in and we have to adjust to living to a new normal that doesn't involve the presence of that person anymore. And this passage directly addresses the pain that we feel at being separated from our loved ones when they die. Because we know instinctively that there's something wrong with separation on any level, isn't there? That's why the six lockdowns in Melbourne hit us so hard. We're designed to be in relationship with each other and to express that relationship. And that's actually a reflection of us being created in the image of God. God himself models perfect relationship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in perfect and eternal relationship with each other. And we were created to mirror that, to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with each other. But the fall that we read about in Genesis had a cataclysmic impact on those relationships and it fractured them. So from birth, we're separated from God because we're broken specimens of humanity. Throughout our lives, brokenness causes rifts in our relationships with each other. And then finally, at death, we're separated from each other. But Paul tells the Thessalonians, and us by extension, that the resurrection changes the way we can look at death. So he applies the truth of the resurrection to Christians who die. Those who've fallen asleep in Jesus is how he terms them. And fallen asleep is just a euphemism for died. It's a more delicate term for a sensitive topic. A bit like we use the phrase, passed away. It's not as blunt as died. So Jesus died and rose again, Paul says. And that means that those people who pass away as Christians will also rise again when Jesus comes back. They're not going to miss out on eternity with Jesus because they will be raised with resurrection bodies. And Jesus will bring them with him when he comes again. Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 15 that they can be confident about what he's saying because it was actually something that Jesus himself said. And there's something really interesting going on here. We need to remember that Paul wrote this letter before the Gospels were written down. 
And all of Jesus' teachings at this stage only existed in word-of-mouth form, or perhaps as short collections of Jesus' sayings. So what we've got here is a snippet of Jesus' teaching that didn't actually end up finding its way into the Gospels. But what we do know is that Paul is speaking with the authority of Jesus here. And he paints a vivid picture of Jesus coming down from heaven, the dead being raised and Christians who are alive at the time being taken up into the air to meet them. And here's where Delia and the Christmas turkey comes in. Well, not literally, but here's where we miss some important stuff if we're not familiar with first century culture. Paul uses some words here that seem pretty ordinary to us. He uses the phrase, coming of the Lord and meet the Lord. But words or phrases that can seem pretty ordinary can actually sometimes carry a deeper meaning because of the association that they have. So think about these phrases for us, depending on how old you are. I'll be back. Conjures up a certain movie, doesn't it? Please explain. You associate that with a certain politician. Sourdough. Well, if you combine it with smashed avo, it conjures up hipsters. If you combine it with toilet paper, then I think all of us would recognise the reference to the first lockdown in Australia last year. And then, of course, there's the phrase that carries particular association for Victorians. Everyone good to go? So in the phrases coming of the Lord and meet the Lord, the words coming and meet were used to refer to ceremonial visits that Roman emperors paid to cities across the empire, usually to celebrate some sort of a military victory. So the minute Paul uses these words, the Thessalonians would be prompted to think about Jesus' second coming in terms of an imperial visit. So we need to know what these imperial ceremonial visits looked like. Well, the emperor would have been heralded with a great fanfare, and a welcoming committee would go out of the city, out beyond the gates, and meet him. There's actually a little bit of political subversion going on here. Because the Roman emperors like to present themselves as agents of salvation for their subjects. And they were addressed as Lord. So when Paul talks about the coming of the Lord and meeting the Lord, and he's referring to Jesus, he's reframing the political order of the day. He's saying that despite all the imperial propaganda that the Thessalonians have received, Jesus is actually their true Lord, not the emperor. But there's more going on here too. Because once the welcoming committee had met the emperor out beyond the city gates, they would accompany him back into the city and all of them would go there together. And it's the bit about going back into the city that's important here. It's tempting to think that this passage suggests that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus on a cloud, maybe playing harps, although the passage doesn't say anything about them. But a first century audience would understand Paul's words in terms of Jesus coming back down to earth and Christians spending eternity with him on earth. The New Testament talks in other places about Jesus coming to put the earth to rights. Romans 8:21 talks about the whole of creation being liberated from its bondage to decay. Revelation 21 talks about a new earth 
We're just going to read it here for you. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So in a way that we just can't imagine, when Jesus comes again, somehow the earth will be renewed. Christians who've already died will be reunited with those who are still alive, and we will all be with Jesus together forever. And that's why we as Christians don't grieve like other people who have no hope. But what strikes me here about Paul's words is that he still gives the Thessalonians permission to grieve. He assumes that they will. He just contrasts the way that they can grieve with the way that non-Christians have to grieve. Grief is still something that Christians will experience because faith in Jesus doesn't cosset us from the pains of life. But we mustn't think that just because we have the assurance of eternal life for ourselves and for our fellow Christians, that we have to prioritize joy for them over sadness that we feel when we lose them. I think sometimes we maybe feel that we're letting the side down if we grieve long and hard and deep for a fellow Christian that we love. But we are allowed to grieve. We just grieve differently because we know that separation from fellow believers isn't permanent. So Paul writes to give certainty and assurance to this fledgling little church in Thessalonica. But the irony is that a passage that's designed to bring certainty to its original audience has actually brought a whole lot of uncertainty to later generations. Because there are different views on exactly how Jesus will come again. Will he literally appear in the air with trumpet calls? Some people would argue that's exactly what this passage says. Other people say that this is figurative language because clouds and trumpet calls were used as figurative images in the ancient world. So the passage expresses a truth that Jesus will be revealed, but the passage doesn't describe literally how that will happen. I have to admit that I lean towards that second view. But I'm also happy to admit that there are things in the Bible we actually don't have enough information about. Sometimes we have to accept that God in his sovereignty, leaves us in the dark about some things. And I think this is one of them. Jesus will be revealed again. Yes, definitely. We can be 100% certain about that. All Christians, whether they're dead or alive at that time, will be raised with resurrection bodies and be reunited with each other and with Jesus. Yes, we can be 100% certain about that. How will that actually happen? 
We don't really know. And that's okay. And you know, Paul was okay with accepting there are things we don't know as Christians. Such as exactly when Jesus' second coming will be. He calls it the day of the Lord in chapter 5 verse 2. But it's still a continuation of his thought from chapter 4 about Jesus coming again. And he tells the Thessalonians that it's futile to even think about exactly when Jesus will come again because none of us can know. All we can know is that it will be sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night. That's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24:43. So Paul continues his theme of reassurance from chapter 4 by telling the Thessalonians that they've got nothing to fear when Jesus comes again. And it's significant that Paul changes his terminology from coming of the Lord to day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase that incorporates the idea of God's judgment and wrath. So Paul goes on now to contrast what lies ahead for Christians with what lies ahead for non-Christians. In verse 3, He repeats a phrase that his first century readers would have been very familiar with because it was another piece of imperial propaganda. Peace and security. The Roman emperors prided themselves on having put together a whole lot of measures to make life safe and secure for their citizens. So they'd got rid of pirates on the Mediterranean Sea and bandits on the road so that people could travel safely. They'd secured the borders of the Roman Empire so that Uh, They wouldn't be invaded. They'd built a huge road network. They'd built aqueducts to pipe water to cities. Their slogan was peace and security. But Paul says, while people were repeating this phrase to each other and basking in the security that their world provided, actually, if their true security is not in Jesus, then judgment will come upon them. And you know, our society is exactly like that. We have a whole lot of measures in place to give us peace and security. But none of them will actually bring eternal security. I was thinking about Psalm 23 recently, that very famous psalm. It was written by David, who was a shepherd, and he understood exactly who the source of his security was. It's just a short psalm, so let me read it to you now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I've been wondering what that psalm might look like in our society, a financial society, for someone whose security is in the structures of our world much like the average first century citizen's security was in the structures of the Roman Empire. 
So I think it might go something like this. Josh Frydenberg is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes my boss pay 10% into my super. He leads me beside guaranteed income streams. He restores my dividend imputation credits. He guides me in Commonwealth-supported uni places for my education's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of no more job keeper, I will fear no COVID economic downturn, for you are with me. Centrelink and Youth Allowance, they comfort me. You prepare a tax return for me in the presence of my accountant. You anoint my super fund with government co-contributions. My pension overflows. Surely wealth and security will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the, ha- in the house of my first-time homebuyer's grant forever. But Paul says, as Christians, we're not like those who put their hope in the structures of our society. We're not in darkness, in verse 4. And we need to make sure that we're not lured by those structures. Yes, we live in a financial society, and we need money and personal financial structures to live. But we need to make sure that our finances have their proper place, and they aren't a false source of security for us. Well, Paul goes on to tell the Thessalonians, and us by extension, to be prepared to meet Jesus when he comes again. We need to be ready for him. And Paul uses a series of images to do with day and night, light and dark, alert and asleep. And these are all images that contrast being spiritually enlightened and being able to live in a way that pleases God with being spiritually ignorant. And that, of course, results in judgment because people are non-believers. So he tells us not to be like those who are asleep, those who are in spiritual darkness. There's actually an irony here. Because back at the beginning of our passage in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul talked about those people who were physically asleep as a metaphor for death. But because they died as Christians, they were actually spiritually awake. Now in chapter 5, verse 6, we have Paul referring to people who are physically alive, but they're spiritually asleep because they don't know Jesus. And people who are asleep can't be ready and alert. And Paul's reference to drunkenness continues with this same idea of being able to be ready. Generally speaking, people are more likely to drink heavily at night, verse 7, parties and things. And if you're drunk, well, just like a sleepy person, you're not alert. And if you're really drunk, you're paralytic, passed out on the floor while the party carries on around you. You're, You're oblivious to reality. So the idea here is that if you're spiritually drunk, You've consumed too much of the world's way of looking at things and you're not, uh, you haven't consumed enough of the way that God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numb to feeling any fear of a coming judgment. But Paul says, you know, we don't belong to the night. We belong to the light. We belong to Jesus. We're not spiritually drunk and numb to the reality 
that Jesus will come again. And we don't need to fear judgment on that day because our security is in Jesus. But we do need to live lives that are in step with that security. Paul says we need to be self-controlled. We need to put on faith and love and the hope of salvation. If our identity is in Jesus, and if we have the assurance of eternity with him, then we need to live in accordance with that identity. We need to live in a way that pleases God. And that will be the topic of next week's sermon, I assume, when you look at the final few verses of Thessalonians. But for now, Paul closes our passage with the command that we're to encourage one another to live out our identity in light of our source of security so that we're ready for Jesus' return. So why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the security that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice you made so that we can spend eternity with you. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the fact that when we grieve being separated from our loved ones who are Christians, that nevertheless we know that they are with you and that together we will all be with you when we come again. Lord Jesus, help us to lead lives that are commensurate with our calling and identity. Help us to lead lives that are grounded on our foundation in you. That the necessary structures that we live within in today's society are not structures that we base all of our security on. Help us, Lord, to, to recognize and appropriate our security in you. And help us to build one another up as we walk in step with your spirit and encourage one another towards uh, good deeds in you. In your name, amen.